Beloved, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your mercies to us, particularly in giving, giving us a people who are slow to understand and heart of heart your word through which your spirit speaks to soften our hearts and to open our ears to understand. And so do so now, we pray, that we may behold Christ in all of his glory as he is revealed to us in Psalm 45. Amen. Our text this morning is Psalm 45, but uh, before we go there, I'm going to look back, or as you turn there, I want to look at Psalm 44, consider where we, what what comes before Psalm 45. Um, One of my seminary professors, the professor in the class on Psalms, uh, said in one of the first lectures in that class that he feels that the that we need to read the Psalms in the same way that we would read the Gospel of Matthew. That is to say that uh, the connection between Psalm 23 and 24 is just as important as the connection between, say, Matthew 15 and Matthew chapter 16. And I, it's one of those things that I cannot get out of my head. And I think that's particularly important as we read Psalm 44, or read Psalm 45 in the light of Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is a psalm about the life of the believer, the life of the church as a life of suffering. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 quotes from Psalm 44. Quotes from Psalm 44, verse 22. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. As He quotes that as the summation of the Christian life. Right? As you read Romans chapter 8, what is the summary statement of the Christian life? It's this. And so it raises the question, I think. Psalm 44 raises the question of the nature of the Christian life. What is it to be? Is the Christian life a life of suffering and asceticism? Asceticism is a denial of the flesh. It's refusing all pleasure and joy. If you feel good, you're doing something wrong. Uh, That's the basic approach of asceticism, and you've probably met some Christians who, who feel that way. I think I probably said that to my kids on more than one occasion. Uh, if, if it makes you happy, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Uh, we're Presbyterians, after all. But that's, I mean, it's funny, particularly when I say it, but it's funny, right, when you're trying to teach your kids a lesson, but it's a genuine question. It's a genuine question in the light of a text like Psalm 44, which, frankly, is kind of a downer. And... So that leads us into Psalm 45, which really, which in some sense is, it really is jarring. Uh, Psalm 44 is about the church's experience of suffering, and then we move into Psalm 45, which takes on an entirely different tone, and it's, it's a jarring transition. It doesn't seem to make much sense almost would seem to be a reply to my seminary professor saying, well, no, 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 these, these, these psalms are entirely random in the way that they show up in, in, the, in the Psalter. And yet I think what we'll see is that really Psalm 45 helps us to 
understand how we are to approach the challenge given to us in Psalm 44. So Psalm 45, which I'll read in its entirety. Psalm 45, to the choir master, according to Lilies, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Amen. This text, as we'll see, is about your coming glorious wedding with Jesus Christ. Your coming glorious wedding with Jesus Christ. Because after all, Jesus Christ is this glorious king. The commentators on this text, we'll talk about uh, the role of this psalm in the life of Israel, and perhaps it was used for royal weddings or at the uh, coronation or anointing of the next in line to the throne of Israel, to the throne of Judah, for, and, is about, and so we should read it as about the Davidic kings, and Davidic kings, just the, the, the descendants of King David uh, who, who came to the throne of Israel. And I got to be honest, I have always struggled, or I, I still struggle with, with reading this psalm uh, because I am, I'm just too American, right? So, so to read a verse that says, I address my verses to the king, my tongue is the pen of a ready scribe, you are the most handsome of the sons of men, um, I cannot but think of the sacrifices of my forefathers uh, to be free from the brutal tyranny of the British oppressor. And, you know, and I think about uh, recently, some of you may have seen some photographs of the uh, coronation of the new King of Canada. And I just, like, I was, I, I, I just thought, I just, I, I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. Like, this is silly. 
He looks silly. Like all of this stuff they're putting on him, and who do they think they're fooling? Like kings are dumb. Like just in principle, right, as an American, I think we can all agree that kings are dumb, and if you disagree, then you know, there's Canada for you, people like you. But I, th- I, you know, so I really have a hard time with this text because of that, right? Like it just like really hits me. And, and of course, you know, when, you, when you find a passage of scripture that really bothers you, there's two choices. One is you can submit to it, another way is you can interpret away that which makes you uncomfortable. And, and so I'm gonna go with option B. Uh, but because, but because interpret away makes me uncomfortable because really, of course, this is a psalm, this is, this is a hymn to Jesus Christ. He is the glorious king. They, those, those kings, kings like David and his descendants who took to the throne, were, even in their best days, were what we call types of Jesus Christ, the true king. A type is something in scripture, or another literary reference, but we're talking about the Bible, something in scripture that points forward. It reveals that which is to come. And we can understand it better as we look back. And so Jesus Christ is the archetype and the Davidic kings, the kings in the line of David, were types, pictures of Christ who is coming. But this is ultimately has to be about Jesus Christ. As we look at, for example, at verse 6, he is addressed as God. It says, says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That is to the king. Uh, and, it's, and in fact, if, if you were to read Hebrews chapter 1, I won't go there, but Hebrews chapter 1 quotes verses 6 and 7 as being about Jesus. I mean, it literally says, verses 6 and 7 of, of, of Psalm 45 are about Jesus, and that's why we know he's greater than the angels, and just moves on. Doesn't even bother trying to defend that argument, because it's so painfully obvious to the apostle as he writes Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, same thing with, with verse 17. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. It's only God. It's only our, the, the king, God as king who is on the throne forever. No, no mortal man, obviously, can be on the throne forever. And no, no, no regal line, sorry, I was struggling with that word because I'm an American. No regal, no royal line uh, can last forever. They don't. Even the Davidic kings uh, ultimately fell from the throne. And so this is about God the king, ultimately, not about a, a, a man, and it needs to be read in that way. But of course, it's ultimately a type of Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate son of God and the divine king. He is the one who came. He is the one who came down to become a man. He was a man. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. But it was as the God-man... God, verse 6, who became man, verse 2, that he did his work and he became our king and he rules now as our king. But Jesus is a very specific type of king. And maybe that's part of why uh, my heart and my intellect uh, rebel against the picture of, of, a, of an earthly king with all of the frippery on, on a golden throne It's because Jesus is the warrior king. Jesus Christ is a warrior king. In verses 3 through 6, he is described, Gird on your thigh, O mighty one, and gird your sword on your thigh, 
O mighty one. He is the one who goes to battle. He rides out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. And verses 3 through 6, as they describe this powerful king, this mighty king, are echoed very much in Revelation chapter 19. And I want to read from Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. If you want to turn there, you can, but I didn't put it up here because I think that this is one of these passages in Revelation. I really think all of Revelation almost works better if you just hear it and let the words come over you and understand the picture. You don't have to get all the details, but the picture of what's being portrayed and see, see as it's described here. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And here, Revelation takes that picture, that picture of the king of the mighty warrior king going to battle for the sake of his people and expands upon it and describes in vivid and glorious language that king and his victory, but it's not simply the victory of the last day, which is in view there, but that victory that he won during his earthly ministry, at the close close of his earthly ministry, when he went forth in battle. But notice how Psalm 45 tells us he went forth in battle. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. And it was those three words that really have stuck with me this last week as I worked on this text. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Think Think of your picture, your mental picture of, of the warrior king, because you have one uh, from all the movies, The Lord of the Rings, or, or like those, there, there's a bunch of shows on Netflix right now, I don't even know what they are, just I see the pictures, so they're all, it's, it's, I think it's all literally the same show, they just put different names on them, um, but whatever, you know, and he's got, you know, he's, he's, he's got short, manly, shorter length hair, uh, but it's thick, a thick head of, of shorter length manly hair, but it's kind of tousled, it's got the five day beard, you know, they're like, 
artfully smudged mud, probably blood of his enemies. And he's like, yeah, right that, right? You got it, right? We're there, you got it, right? And you're like, that's guy. And what is he saying? Let us go forth meekly. Let's go forth meekly. Like it totally doesn't belong. Truth, truth and, and righteousness. Yeah, like uh, Mel Gibson and Braveheart, totally overrated. But you know, that one, that, that, that thing, but meekness? But yeah, because our Savior's great victory, when he went forth as a king to do battle against his and our enemies, was when he went to the cross. Who are the enemies of our king? The enemies of our king are sin and death. They're sin and death. And the reason his enemies are sin and death is because they are your enemies. They are our enemies as a fallen and broken people. As a meek and weak and humiliated and humble people. And so when he goes forth in victory, when he rides out with strength and power and truth and righteousness, it is for the sake of the meek. It's not for his sake, it's not for his glory that he does these things. Rather, it is for the sake of his people. That is his glory, to be humiliated and humble because you are humiliated and humble and meek. Meek. Meek and unable to fight, unable to defend yourself. That is our Savior. That is our King who went to the cross to put Sin to death by his death for your sins. To remove your sin and to break the power of sin's condemnation over you. So that you might be declared righteous. Truly be declared righteous in the sight of God. Because not only did he wash away your sins with his blood. But he has clothed you in his righteousness. And in that manner, in his resurrection, defeated death. And his resurrection brought you into your resurrection on the last day. So that death itself, not just sin, but death, has no power over you. In strength and power, he became weak and humbled. And that is the great work of the king. The great work of our king, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is for that reason he has been given every name. It is for that reason that he has been exalted on high to the right hand of the throne of God the Father. As the Christ, as the Messiah, as the anointed one. As it says in verse 7, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. To be anointed is to have oil poured on one's head in order to take office. And that's how in, uh, of old, of old in Israel, that's how kings, that's how kings were elevated to office. Not by putting a crown on their head, but by putting oil on their head. They were anointed to this role. The anointed, of course, in Hebrew, the anointed one in Hebrew means Messiah, and it's translated in the Greek to Christ. It is Christ who is the anointed one. He is our anointed king, and he is this king. He is beautiful. 
You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. As a son of God, he is worthy of every honor. But as the Christ in particular, he is elevated. He is elevated and given every name and authority and dominion because of his great victory on your behalf. And so now he is in glory Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. He is clothed in glory because of what he has done for you. And before we move on, before we move on, I want to make one last homiletical and poetical point. Uh, and, And I say that because it has a nice euphemy, homiletical and poetical, but homiletical is sermonic sermon. But it's 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 it notice how it should show in your Bible that there's a break between verse 9 and 10, and that's because there, the stanza, this stanza of the poem about the king culminates in verse 9 with the queen. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Because you cannot In the Bible, you cannot have the king without his queen. Which brings us into the next stanza, poetically poetically structured then to lead us into the next stanza, but understand how interconnected they must be. Because as Christ is the glorious king, his bride is the church. His bride is the church. You'll notice that in this psalm, the, the, the bride, the king's bride, has a corporate identity, corporate, by, by, by which I simply mean a, a group identity, in ways that kind of, kind of make us uncomfortable. And, and uh, it, it, the, the way that it's, it's written um, talks about the people of Tyre, uh, but then it says she's, she's an individual. She is the queen, verse 9. She is the princess in verse uh, verse 13, so she's a singular person, but she's accompanied, accompanied by companions. She's always associated with companions. In many colored robes, she's led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. Because, of course, this is, this is, if this is just about a king, an earthly king, it sort of, it, what, what are they talking about here? More than one uh, woman being led to him, and is this a Polygamy, what is it? What's going on here? But of course, we understand, we understand that what this ultimately points to is to the church of Jesus Christ. That she is one body, one person, and yet, of course, made up of many parts, many people, all brought together. That there is this corporate identity that the church has that comes from around the world. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. Verse 12, the, the riches of the people, the people, the, the, the church is made up of people who come from around the world. And here, the way that this, is, this, this reference, of course, looks forward even into the future to the time that we live in now, the church age, where people from around the world come into the church to make up the body, which is the church. But if, church is the, if the church is the bride of Christ, which, of course, the church is the bride of Christ, then Verse 16 reminds us that as the church is the bride, she is also the mother of the faithful. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. That is to say that 
As the church grows, so too does the number of believers grow. It's a simple fact. I, I can't remember who wrote it, but, but, but another one of those things I read that stuck with me. So I'm making the point that no matter what Christian tradition we're talking about, whether it's Presbyterian or Anglican or Baptist or even Pentecostal or Charismatic, that other than, other than the frontier times, times when Christianity is a frontier religion, uh, meaning just simply those days when Christianity, when the faith uh, goes into a brand, new, a brand new land where nobody has ever heard the gospel before. Other than that, church growth comes primarily not from new converts, but from births. And that's, just, that's simply an empirical fact. That's simply, that's just, just a truth that in any given Baptist congregation in this country, right, people are born and raised into Baptist congregations. I'm not criticizing the Baptists, that's just true. And it's just true that, that's, that, that, that is people are born, by and large, people are born into the faith and they're raised in the faith and they stay in the faith. By and large, not universally, but by and large. And so this is the role of the church then as the bride of Christ is also then the place in which believers are born and nurtured and grow in Christ. Because as they, of course, children are born into the church where they hear the gospel all the time. It's kind of hard to resist it. I mean, honestly, uh, it's, it's really hard to resist the plain truth of God's word. And so we see the nature and identity of the church here. But we also look forward then to understand what we are, what we are looking, or rather this, the way this is phrased, sorry, a little tongue twisted there. The way this is phrased helps us to understand what we're really looking at then. What we're looking at in this psalm is a particular moment in time. We're looking forward to a wedding day. This is not a psalm about the life of the church. It's not a psalm so much about uh, the ongoing nature of the church and her relationship to Jesus Christ, but rather to a specific moment in time. This is about a wedding, right? This is about the, 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 the bride being led to the glorious king, and she is clothed in, in glory as well, and she is with her, she's with her servants, she's with all of these people, they're led together, and that the idea that, that, that sons, in the place of fathers shall be your sons, is all perspective. And so we're looking towards a wedding day. And so what is that wedding day? And of course, we understand now with the fullness of of. God revealing to himself in the pages of scripture and of his plan for us in the pages of scripture that it is as we have Christ victoriously, you can't see where I'm pointing in my Bible. So we're going to see Christ in victory, which is verses three through six, Christ in victory, Psalm three through six, then when does his wedding come? His wedding comes in his victory. The wedding of the king and his bride comes in his victory, which is described for us in Revelation chapter Again, Revelation 19, verses uh, 6 and 7. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. It is the marriage of the Lamb, and his bride has made herself ready. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. We are looking forward to that time. That time, like all times, 
for believers like all times in the scriptures, a time which has begun, which was inaugurated in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, and yet we'll, we will see in its glorious fullness on the last day when Christ's final victory is made public and is declared to all the nations. It is to that, it is to that that we look forward, and that is ultimately the picture here to the reality of what our Savior did for us on the cross and in his resurrection, displayed in its fullness on the last day. And so when our Lord Jesus Christ defeats his and your enemies once and for all, you will enjoy fully and perfectly your union, your wedding with him. And so your coming glorious wedding with Jesus Christ brings joy into your present life. This is not just future. We do not simply have a, a, a future hope that, we, that you have to kind of grit your teeth to look forward to. Yes, this present life is, is, is horrible and terrible and we just have to get through to the end and there is no joy in the present. Now this is where I have to fight not just my natural tendencies as an American, but also as a Presbyterian, uh, to say that there can actually be happiness in the present age. I'm, you can't have perfect happiness. Uh, I, I could, if, if you want to check with me later, I'll, I'll explain how that's described in our larger catechism, how perfect happiness, I'm not kidding, perfect happiness awaits glory. But now, even now, there is joy. There is joy as you prepare, as you prepare for what is to come. That's how you need to see the present life. Now is the time to put on these glorious robes. I think often, oftentimes we think of glory as entirely future, but it has a present reality as well. The bride, verses 13 and 14, all glorious is a princess in her chamber with, robe, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. You know, I, I read that and I think, boy, howdy, our, our, our wedding industry is, is way too monochromatic. Uh, we need robes of many colors at our weddings. That's, that's, let's, let's, let's do some of that. Let's show our Presbyterian faithfulness to the Psalms by doing that. Um, but... But what does that represent? But, but, but there's a reason that we're, actually though, there's a biblical reason that we are monomaniacally fixated on the color white. Uh, and that's because of what those robes represent. What do those robes represent? Go back to Revelation chapter 19. It says, uh, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Re Revelation 19 verse 8 it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is to say, everything in Revelation, of course, is a symbol. And that glory, the glory of those white robes, those white wedding dress is the glory of the righteous deeds that we do now as we've been called by Jesus Christ, as we've been remade in his image and we imitate him. Uh, earlier, uh, an earlier prophecy, Isaiah chapter 61, speaks of the same reality. A I'm sorry, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. 
My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. It is Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. He has clothed me. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. That is to say, these righteous deeds are are, are things that are given to you by God the Spirit. That as you have been saved from your sins, that you have been united then to Jesus Christ your King, and his Spirit clothes you in righteousness, in sanctification. These are gifts from God the Spirit himself to prepare you, to prepare you for that which is to come, to get you ready For when you meet Jesus Christ face to face. And this then helps us to understand the reality of the church's suffering in this present age. Psalm 44. That what we experience now is mere preparation for the glory which is to come. What we experience now, and especially what we suffer now, is merely preparation for the glory which is to come. It is putting off, as we suffer for Christ and with Christ, it is putting off, is putting off sin and love for this dead world, and is becoming more like Jesus Christ, who did not live for this world. He obviously did not live for this world, but he lived for his people and for the possibility of bringing them into the age to come on the last day. That is what he lived for, and that is what we are called to live for. And as the church suffers, she gives testimony to the world that this life is not what we are living for. And this is a challenge to young people in particular. Sanctification... Sanctification is not about being good. Okay? Just just get that out of your head. It's not about being a good person. Because as you grow up, and as you go out into the world, and as you turn on your television, you will discover that being good is kind of a buzzkill, and that being bad is a lot of fun. Now, I, now, now, every parent in this building is now trying to figure out what they're going to do to me after the service. But I, I'm just going to keep going. You can't, you can't bum rush the stage uh, in the middle of a sermon. But, but, but really, right? Looks like a lot of fun. Being bad is a lot of fun. Being good, kind of a drag. Right? That is not what sanctification is. Sanctification is being like Jesus. Okay? Sanctification is being like Jesus. It is preparation for the time which is to come when you're going to be united to Christ perfectly and gloriously. This world wants to kill you. And being bad is saying to the world, death, yes, awesome, cool, I will die. Let me just slowly carve away from my flesh 
everything which is alive, everything which is Christ-like, everything which is vivid and true and real, so that I can be just like the world, which is corrupt and empty and passing away and full of suffering and sorrow. And maybe I'm not talking to just the young people, but also talking to their parents, right? Because, of course, you are ensconced in the world. If you have a day job where you get paid money, you're living in the world. And I guarantee you that your company exists, that whoever you're working for as a corporation exists to make money. That's ultimately what it comes down to, it makes money. I'm not being critical, I am an American. I'm not criticizing that. That's the reality, okay? But that's this present age. And so if you're living in the world, and we all live in the world, you have to recognize the temptation to just simply let it all go, to, 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 to let go of the vigilance, to let go of the vigilance, and to recognize that, no, you always have to be on guard to follow Jesus Christ. And there might be time to suffer for his sake by denying the world, to prepare for something better. And so... Now is the time to come to Christ as his glorious bride. Now in the present day to imitate him by suffering for his sake and for his glory's sake. Now is the time to put on glorious robes and to rejoice, to rejoice in present suffering. The people of Tyre will seek out favor, your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. To suffer for Christ's sake is to get ready for your heavenly wedding. All day long, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Psalm 44, verse 22. With joy and gladness, they are led along. Like sheep, with joy and gladness, they are led along, Psalm 44, 45, Psalm 45, verse 15, as they enter the palace of the king. This is getting ready for your heavenly wedding. To suffer for Christ's sake is getting ready for your heavenly wedding, and therefore it is a joy. Not all suffering, mind you, is suffering for Christ's sake. Uh, many of us suffer in the flesh, but the world suffers in the flesh. Like, I mean, in the flesh, I mean literally in this body, like my back is killing me. And, and that's by itself, right? That's, that's, that suffering is not necessarily, ought not be understood merely as suffering for Christ unless, unless it is a joyful realization that what I am literally feeling right now in my lower back reminds me that I have something better which is coming. That saying no in the workplace and suffering the consequences is preparation 
for when I will meet my Savior face to face. And his opportunity for he who, who said no to the world finally in his crucifixion, said no, he said no to sin and to Satan and to the powers of this present age by letting them kill him. So that when you say no to the world, you are becoming more like Jesus who suffered and died for your sake. That is a joy. It is a joy, beloved. It is a joy to become more like Christ and is a testimony to the world when the church is more like Christ. But it's the challenge of reframing your existence in humility before the Lord and how he has revealed himself to you and his purposes for you in the scriptures. Right? You've got to see it the way that God sees it. You have to see your life the way that Jesus sees your life as it's here in Psalm 44 and 45 and Revelation and the whole Bible. It is living for Christ. Understand that this victory, the victory that we read about in Revelation, in Revelation 19, but all of Revelation and, and in Psalm 45, the victory of the king is a reality that is experienced by the faithful church already. Now the people of Tyre, now the nations of the world are coming into the church. Now now the people, now the church rather, is producing princes. It may not seem that way, right? Like where, where are the princes of the church? Where, where, where are the Christians in, in powerful positions in our country and around the world? Well, you're looking in the wrong places. The, those, who hold, the, those who hold office in the church, those who lead the church... I don't want to call them princes because that's really going to confuse the issue. Uh, but that's, that's the idea. That's, that is a role of leadership. Those who lead in the church are of no account in the world, but they are doing work that is of eternal consequence. Eternal consequence. Right? Now, I'm not... This, this is not me picking on the current president because I could say this under any, any presidential administration. What goes on in the White House, decisions that are being made in the White House yesterday and today and next week, all that stuff, right, is going to have a much bigger impact on the world today than what I say, than what I'm doing today from the pulpit or, or what, you know, Pastor, or Pastor Chad has done in his ministry, right? The world is not going to be changed. It's very unlikely that the world is going to be changed in a consequential way by my ministry or Pastor Chad's ministry in the same way that it will be changed and affected in a consequential way by President Biden or President Trump or Obama and go all the way back. But eternally? Eternally? What is said this morning has far greater import than any presidential declaration which has ever been made And what the ministry of our pastor is of much greater, greater eternal significance than the work of all the presidents of the United States rolled up into one. Because that's, eternity is what matters. Eternity is what matters, and the work of the church is what matters in the end. We will not be talking in glory of the great history of the United States. 
I cannot tell you. I, honestly, that sort of shocks me. That still shocks me. I'm, I, I, I know what my idols are, and one of them is I'm an American. And, and it's two days until our great feast of national idolatry, so it's so a good preparation to, to reorient ourselves, right, is to remember that as great as our country is, and, and I have Canadian friends who I've argued this with, as great as our country is, and it truly is, I think I can say it, I really, really believe it is, nonetheless, it doesn't matter. And also Canada doesn't matter, or even Britain, or Spain, or Uganda, Venezuela, Nigeria, these nation states, the United Nations, they don't matter as much as the church. And so this victory, this victory is being enacted now because what we are doing here is of eternal consequence and will change eternity. Eternity is being affected. Eternity is being written by what is done by the church today because after all, of course, those who are gathered into the church will live everlastingly in the new heavens and the new earth. And in the end, in Christ, you will rule the world. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes of all the earth. And so rejoice. Rejoice in all God is doing with you now, especially the hard things, because they prepare you for the glory which is to come. Your coming glorious wedding with Jesus Christ brings joy into your present life. So praise your Lord and Bridegroom. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the King. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. The king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord, bow to him. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever as we praise him now. And so, therefore, verse 11, then, beloved, since he is your Lord, bow to him. Bow to him. Bow to him. Worship him. Praise him. Because he is your Lord. He is your Redeemer. He is your King. And he is your Bridegroom. Amen. Our Lord, we give thanks to you, who are our Lord and King. We look forward to your reign and glory, and we give you thanks that that reign was inaugurated, was inaugurated after your death, burial, and resurrection when you ascended on high. Now you reign in glory, and now you have allowed us to begin to enter into that glory which is to come through the sufferings of this present age and through our sanctification in this present age. And so... Help us to see the reality of who you are and what you are doing, O Christ our Lord, that we may worship and adore you now as we shall in the age to come, world without end. Amen.